The scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with the power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Christina. Let me uh, add my welcome to Donna's earlier welcome, especially to those of you who might be here for the first time this morning. Welcome to MPC. Let me also say a special welcome to these folks and uh, others who are joining us online. It's a joy and a privilege to welcome you into membership at MPC. I imagine some of you are surprised to see me still here. <laughs> it's been four weeks since they let me get up here to preach, so... Uh, <clears throat> I know you all are eager to have Dr. Hilton arrive now that you've had a chance to meet him and we have received him officially, but not quite yet, okay? <clears throat> this morning we want to come back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Next week is Pentecost. And so, of course, we will need to speak of the Holy Spirit. And then my last Sunday with you, as uh, Donna said, will be on June the 4th. And then, at last, uh, Ray and Judith will be among us. I wonder how many of you have had this experience. You might have been talking to a friend, and that friend might have said, boy, I just... I so enjoy the time that I spend in prayer. I feel so close to God. And that hasn't been your experience particularly. But you decide you're going to give it another try. So you fight to find time to pray. You settle into your chair for maybe a few moments. Okay, this is good. This is the beginning of something new, a new habit, maybe in response to a New Year's resolution or in response to that conversation with that friend. And then maybe... Oh, I'd give you about 30 seconds. Something pops into your head that you forgot. Or your mind wanders to, oh my gosh, I just remembered I need to pack lunches for the day. Or I wonder how my patient or my client is getting along. Or maybe in that moment your mind becomes a battleground for the very importance of praying. Like, what am I doing? Is there really someone I'm addressing in prayer? Or am I making this up? Or is God really present? I have to work on that paper that's due in 
an hour, in which case you should pray, really. <laughs> I confess that in just the last week, many of these similar sorts of obstacles have occurred to me. And if you're feeling like a rookie in prayer, we've talked a lot about prayer over the last months, then I want to assure you that we are going to be rookies until the day we see Jesus face to face. Prayer is that liminal space, that frontier of human existence where we are always prone to ask yes, no. We hear the instruction of Jesus. We hear his invitation. We respond as best we can. We'll just be learners all of our lives because the world into which Jesus Christ has invited us is in many ways alien to the one that seems instinctive to us. My counsel in these circumstances is when you come up against inevitable distractions and when your mind wanders, my counsel is laughter. Laugh at yourself, at your own fickleness, at your own divided heart. Laugh at the evil one who would like nothing better than to interrupt even a moment's communion between our Father and his beloved children. Then quietly ask the Lord for your help, for his help, and bring your mind and heart back to him. He knows your weakness, he knows your temptations, and still he invites you to draw near. This is a marathon, not a sprint. My model for this suggestion is Paul himself in these opening chapters of Ephesians. He has been trying to pray for these Ephesians since chapter 1, and he keeps getting distracted. He keeps getting turned aside. His prayer turns into instruction. He will begin to pray, and then he'll say, oh, that reminds me. Let, me. let me just go back and make sure we understand this. His contemplation of the great mysteries of God are always interrupted by his need to bring his readers along. So back in the first chapter, he prays for this reason. But he doesn't get very far before he himself is sidetracked. But I'm so glad that we are because if he got sidetracked, what he gave us was chapter 2 that you've heard from Lisa and Donna in recent weeks. That What could we do without chapter 2 of Ephesians? It's one of the clearest statements that we have anywhere in Scripture of our need for Christ and the extraordinary gift that we have been given in Christ through his death and resurrection. But then again, at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, for this reason, and you can hear him, oh yeah, I forgot, I was in the middle of praying, for this reason, but then he gets sidetracked again, recounting his own calling. You'll remember, he says, my story. And then he gives us this cosmic vision of the purpose and calling of the church, of NPC. Some of you might remember nine months ago when I stood here for the first time before you. That was our text, the first part of Ephesians 3, because it helps us to see that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are an outpost of the kingdom of God, a sentinel, a beacon, if you will, 
demonstrating in belief and in action the truth and goodness of the kingdom of our Christ. So I'm glad for that sidetrack. But here again, in verse 15, he starts again. He tries once more to finish his prayer. For this reason, he says. But of course, by now, we've forgotten what the reason was in the first place. Do you remember what the reason was? You have to go back to the first chapter. It's why I always suggest to you, whenever we're dealing with short books like Ephesians, that you always try to make time to read the whole thing at one sitting. Not every day, but just read the whole thing at one sitting because it actually does hold together. You might be surprised to know that. There's actually an argument being made, one that we can follow. Well, back in chapter one, he writes, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose in Christ, he wants to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Think for a moment what has so captivated the Apostle Paul. After all, he thought, as a faithful Jew, that he knew the way things were supposed to go. But all of his ideas were blown to smithereens on the Damascus Road when he encountered the last person in the world that he would expect to meet. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead. As a result, all of his categories were shot. His world turned upside down. In that moment, he learned that God wasn't just interested in restoring Israel to its former glory. God had a much larger vision, one that encompassed all human beings. Indeed, it encompassed all of creation itself the entire universe. Paul elsewhere declares, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that means that all of the old categories, the ways that we try to control the world by assigning good and evil, you're the good guys, you're the bad guys, I know how to comport myself in the world, all of those old categories have been undone. No longer can the world be split conveniently into two. For Paul, it was Jew and Gentile. But what other divisions do we use to serve this purpose in our lives? Politics, race, ethnicity, school allegiance, inside or outside the beltway, right or wrong side of the tracks? All of these divisions and more have been relativized, you see, by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I think you understand. When we say Jesus is Lord, that is a radical statement of priority in our allegiances. He's not Lord of everything but politics, everything but school allegiance. He is Lord of all. It is the dramatic claim that we make as Christians. And by submitting to his Lordship, this is what we are doing as a church. We are actually creating space for forgiveness to happen between us.
Because you see, when enemies each bend the knee before our Savior, then there is our shared humility before the cross. And that is where reconciliation happens. And hope can be born anew. This is the vision that Paul has described for us in these early chapters of Ephesians. But he's no romantic. He has both persecuted Christians and suffered persecution as a Christian. And Paul knows how difficult it is to put belief into work in real practices of forgiveness and unity. Did you know that there can be an eternity between believing that something is true and living like it? An eternity can fill that gap between belief and practice. And in that gap between belief and practice, that's where hypocrisy loves to live. But Paul has already told us that this is what the kingdom of God is. And the church, National Presbyterian Church, wherever the people of Jesus Christ are gathered, the church is the place where we, sharing our mutual allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord, this is where the kingdom is worked out in our midst. This is, as I've said before, the laboratory where Christ is formed in us in the give and take between sinful people like us. It's where the gap is shrunk, where we dare to try to put into practice what we say we believe. So here at the end of chapter 3, Paul is praying that we, the church, would experience what he has just described. He is praying that God's plan would be fulfilled in the lived experience of Christians together. Us. And why is he praying? Why doesn't he just tell us to go do it? Well, he's praying because he knows that unless God helps us, unless God empowers us through the working of the Holy Spirit, forming Jesus Christ in each one of us, we simply won't do it. We will settle for a certain socially acceptable level of religiosity. But that's not living active faith that builds bridges to God and breaks down barriers between people. He knows that we are not strong enough or smart enough or sophisticated enough or experienced enough in the ways of God's love to pull off this church thing by ourselves. Look at what he prays. First he asks that the Father would grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner being and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. When our new members stood up here a moment ago and professed allegiance to Jesus Christ, they had a choice to make. They say, I believe that with my head, just like all of us. But how do we live? 
How do we narrow the gap between what we say we believe, what we profess we believe in good conscience, and then narrow the gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live? Paul knows our weakness. He knows what it is to be weak. He's written elsewhere about being afflicted with a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that is, but we know that he was frustrated by it. And he was frustrated that he couldn't get ahead of it. We know something of the fact that he was persecuted for Christ's sake. He's writing Ephesians from a Roman jail. And so he is a trustworthy witness about how to respond in the face of weakness what it looks like to call upon God's strength when we run out of our own. In this case, he is praying that the Ephesians would have the courage to live into the reconciling power of Jesus. Because it takes strength to be willing, in the name of Christ, to do the hard work of forgiving and being willing to forgive and then asking for forgiveness. To do the hard work of saying, you know, something's not right between us. And for our sakes and for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of the integrity of the church, we need to do what we can to get right between us. It's easy to ask for forgiveness and to think, I've asked forgiveness, so it's all good, right? Sometimes we ask forgiveness to get off the hook. I know you've never done it, but I have. We think, okay, I'm supposed to ask forgiveness. Will you forgive me? Yes, good. So we never have to talk about this again, right? That's my hope, but that's my sinful side. I admit to you this morning that I'm a sinner too. It was many years ago now when I stood up to preach at the beginning of the service. It was, uh, people were, uh, people at my church in Durham are just like you all. You come about five minutes late to everything. So, so I was preparing for worship and in walks someone who didn't go to church there and she sat right on the front pew there. And it was my girlfriend from senior year in college. It was probably 20 years later and I had been a cad to her in the way that we broke up. I had asked her to forgive me long ago, but more for my own sake than for reconciliation. You know what I mean? I had written to her later. I was plagued by this. I knew that I had not been a Christian in the way that I had broken up with that relationship. Now here she was and I was supposed to stand up in a pulpit, not quite like this, and to proclaim the word of God. I swallowed hard, I walked down to the front pew and I sat down next to her. And I said to her, I know you know how sorry I am for the way that I ended things between us. But I just want you to know that I still ache and want you to forgive me for that. So 20 years later, that call for reconciliation was still working on me. She burst into tears 
And she said, of course, we're fine. I'd like to think that that gives us hope. That the gospel of forgiveness can actually take root in our lives. They can actually bring about real change and reconciliation. But it's not just strength that we need, as if all we needed was willpower. Look at Paul's text again. No. It's a strength that emerges from dependence. It's a strength that comes as we have our roots more deeply put into the rich soil of the love of God. Paul prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Jesus Christ. And to know this love, listen to this, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I'm supposed to know something that surpasses knowing. I don't get it. Knowing something beyond knowing. But do you have a feeling for how radical that is? We're so cautious in our commitments, aren't we? We know we're busy with all kinds of things, and we have lots of choices and options, so we end up feeling like we always have to count the potential cost in time and money and opportunity and payback. And we consider all that we know about something, an invitation, or someone, before we decide to give ourselves. We hedge our bets all the time. We make sure that we have a way out even before we go in. But here's the question. What if you really cannot know something or someone unless you first take the risk of loving? What if love precedes knowledge. This is the way Jesus invited the disciples, you know. He didn't tell them all of the details. He said, come and follow me. And it was in the following that they came to understand him. Love precedes knowledge. That's the upside-down logic of the kingdom of God. Love opens the way to true knowledge. And if you are unwilling to love, then you will not know the truth. There is no other way. I think Paul is gazing pretty deep here into the heart of God. And he's asking us to recognize that there is a reality that exceeds our natural ability to understand. There's something about the character of God that is not irrational as much as it is beyond reason. What is it? Notice the language for God throughout this paragraph. Language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything Paul wants to say about us is rooted in the reality of who God is. The Spirit and the Son in loving relationship with the Father. This is why Christians insist that God exists as one in three persons. And we know that that is a challenge for many of us. What I'm trying to talk about here is exactly what that was about. 
God in three persons. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father in the bond of the Spirit. And because he exists as a community of love himself, in Jesus Christ, he invites us to enter in so that we can share one another's hurts and needs, so that we can rejoice with those who rejoice, that we can sorrow with those who are sorrowing. This is the extraordinary thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood it as much as it rubbed him wrong. He understood that God exists as three in one in a relationship of self-giving love. And here's the really good part. Here's the fantastic part. Through Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his taking on our human nature, his resurrection and ascension, he has entered into our fallen world. He has become like us. He's taken on our human nature. And at the same time, he represents God to us. He represents God to us and us to God. He lifts us into a life of communion with the Father. And he does this by the power of the Holy Spirit, breaking the stranglehold of evil through his faithful obedience, even unto death. And the spell has been broken. As Lewis imagines in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a great thaw is upon us. And thank God for that, because our hearts are cold toward God and toward one another. You see, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is inexorably drawing his creation back into a life of communion with him. And not to recognize that is to live a lie. That's why Jesus, in his encounter with Paul in the Damascus Road, pleaded with him. Why, Paul, do you kick against the goads? Why do you resist my claim upon you? Why do you insist on living against the grain of the universe? Will you yield, Paul? And that's the question for us. Will you yield? But this isn't a mixed martial arts cage match where God has you in a death grip waiting for you to tap out. This is a different kind of a grip. This is the loving embrace of the Father who invites you to live into the truth of the universe. The width and the breadth and the height and the length of the love of God in Jesus Christ. And the goal, Paul says, is that you might be filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. My guess is that when you woke up this morning, you did not think that was your goal. But to be filled to the overflowing of the fullness of God. This is what the Lord wants for us. Beloved in Christ, don't our differences pale when compared to that as our purpose and calling? What does this look like then, quickly, in practical terms? Two examples. Back in Durham, two of my best friends, a couple trained in medicine, 
came face to face with a serious threat to their marriage, his infidelity. There's a reason why the first soap opera that captured America's attention is called General Hospital. Hospitals can be a mosh pit of relationship. But my friends found their way to their pastor's study where through conversation she forgave her husband and they began the hard work of reconciliation. Her motivation, she expressed it this way. She said, Jesus Christ has forgiven me so much. How could I not open the door to forgiving him? That was the beginning, not just of a restored marriage, but of the beginning of a ministry to many medical students who found themselves in similar situations of brokenness and despair and heartache. But do you see what happened? As the two of them, husband and wife, recognized their shared indebtedness to Jesus Christ, as they knelt in shared humility before the cross of Christ, forgiveness gave birth to new hope and the restoration that came to many others through them. One other example, very different. Some years ago, I had the privilege of meeting a woman from Burundi. Her name was Maggie. <clears throat> Maggie, in 1993, had been witness to the slaughter of Hutus by, Tutu, by Tutsis. Some soldiers came to her Roman Catholic school and forced her to watch as 72 priests and nuns were killed. Her response was to create a Christian community called Maison Shalom, House of Peace. She said, I am a Christian, and I know that our call, however difficult, is to love. So she began to take in orphans. And one of those orphans was a young woman named Allie, who to this day bears the scars of a machete attack. But she was raised in Maison Shalom. And when she was asked about the incident that led to her scarring, she said, I can forgive because I have been raised in so much love here at the home. God forgives my sins, so how can I not forgive those who hurt me? There's a gap between what we believe and how we live. These are two examples, and you have others, of how that gap gets crossed. God forgives my sins. How can we not forgive those who hurt us? Forgiveness in Jesus Christ is the wellspring of new life that opens the door to meaning and hope. This is the love for which Paul, of which Paul speaks and for which he prays for those Ephesians and for us. As my time with you all draws to a close, I would like to take this opportunity and pray Paul's prayer over you as a congregation. Let's pray.
I pray that according to the riches of his glory, the Father may grant you to be strengthened in your inner being with power through his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you, too, may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the strong name of our Savior, amen.